I'm Melissa Pacey, Principal at HGA Architects and Engineers. Within Cornet, I'm on the Leadership Council, and today I'm here with Amber Sciata, who is my co-chair for the Young Leader Group. I'm Melissa. Hi, Amber. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. This month, we were lucky enough to have Ken Rosen at our general chapter meeting, and he gave us a fantastic economic forecast. Amber worked with Ken for over 10 years before she started at JLL as Director of Research for Northern California. Amber, could you tell us a little bit more about Ken? Sure. (laughs) Working with Ken is definitely a unique experience. I interned there while I was at Cal for four years, and then I worked there full-time as an analyst for six years after I graduated. And everything I've ever learned about real estate economics, I can say I learned from Ken. So one thing I want to say about Ken He's an academic. He's been on many boards. He's the chairman of the Fisher Center for Urban Economics and Real Estate at UC Berkeley. But he's also one of the most famous West Coast prognosticators, I think, that we've had in real estate in the last 20 years. In 2001, he predicted the dot-com crash and said 80% of all internet businesses were going to fail. Now, that wasn't very popular news at the time, but six months later, it became true. And that's when we saw the first crash in San Francisco's office market. And then the second prediction he made in in recent years was he was shorting the housing market in 2006, and he really believed that there was a subprime bubble, and that came to fruition a few years later. Now, you hear Ken joke in the forecast that his predictions aren't always true. He's been predicting rising interest rates for the last 15 years, and finally that's coming true. So, you know, he does does realize sort of where he sits in that, but definitely worth listening to. Amber, after Ken spoke, we had a very dynamic panel that I think it would be interesting for you and I to talk more about. The first one was Bruce Kane, who's a political science professor at Stanford. I thought he had a lot of really great insights. One, he has some historical perspective. He's seen many administrations come and go. So his comments, I almost felt were a little bit soothing <laughs> in terms of level setting where we are and what we can expect. The second panelist was Jason Hickey, who worked with the Bush administration prior, I guess, in the mid-2000s, prior to the Obama administration. So he had some interesting perspective on what a Republican administration might do for the economy. And then third was Gil. Gil Gonzalez, yes, he was actually really great. He works with GoBiz with the state of California for Jerry Brown. And so his perspective was really unique in how the California... Uh, policies in the California economy may interact or, or react to the new Trump administration. So all three of them really provided a holistic viewpoint that was a great addition to what Ken's forecast uh, comments were at the beginning of the event, because it, I think it gave some of our Cornet members, first of all, who have businesses here, some perspective on how California will fit in this new administration. But two, I think, you know, we're a fairly liberal community here. And I think having some broader perspectives on the administration and what others are thinking maybe outside of California uh, was also a really interesting perspective, I think, for our, our listeners to hear. And there was a little bit of banter. Ken and the panelists didn't always agree. So it's interesting if you listen uh, to the podcast, definitely listen for those moments because you'll see where the controversies are. I'm excited for our listeners to be able to have the opportunity to hear Ken and all of the panelists today. So happy listening. I'm Jay Scholl. I'm the uh, executive vice president of this chapter. Welcome, everyone. It's an exciting day, exciting time. We have a great group of panelists that I can't wait to hear. And I'm delighted to introduce my friend and colleague. Matt and I have been together 15 years now, first at Trammell Crow and now at CBRE. Matt is the president uh, of Enterprise Facilities at CBRE on a global basis. Uh, he is a board member of NorCal Global, uh, so he's an important guy, very influential in the community and in the marketplace. Matt, it's all yours. Thanks, Jay. Appreciate it. Hi, everybody. Wow, what a great, what a great turnout. 
One of the things that's different between Cornet and church is that people sit in the front at Cornet, and that's really nice. It's good to see you all. We have, how many of you have been to the economic forecast before? All right. So you know that Ken Rosen's going to provide a timely, erudite, interesting, and valuable update for us. And he's done that for three years for us. I don't think I can think of 10 plus years of attending forecasts where I've had a more interesting or weighty or maybe even scary time with what's going to happen with our economy. So I think this is a very, very valuable session that we've got. And I'll introduce Ken in a moment. We're, try we're going to do the panel a little differently um, today. And I think it'll be a great intro to that February session, which is going to be a little more uh, California and Bay Area focused. Our panel is uh, not uh, economists. We have one. That's plenty in any room. Uh, our panel um, is going to tackle the question of anticipating federal regime change and what's it's, well, how's it going to ripple back through our economy. So everybody, what's happening tomorrow? Everybody knows what's happening tomorrow. We're inaugurating the 45th president of the United States of America. And uh, we all, uh, I think, need new lenses, new reminders from our civics classes, and um, some tools to help anticipate and be really good stewards of the corporate real estate portfolios we're responsible for. Because change is coming. It's difficult to anticipate, and we need to be good at it. The, we're going to make sure that this is a bipartisan and non-political panel. However, I do have the subtitle, What to Expect When You're Expecting the Worst. Um, <laughs> all right. But before the panel, we'll hear from our esteemed economist, Ken Rosen. Ken is a professor emeritus from Cal, chairman of the Fisher Center, chairman of Rosen Consulting, and uh, he's going to tell us what to anticipate in the economy in 2017. Are you ready, Ken? All right, the clicker is yours. Thank you. I'm here to channel Donald Trump. It's really difficult. Having met him twice, you know, he's the orange swan. So we're going to try to figure out what's going to happen. And I think it's worth saying that we are on the verge of probably the biggest change in federal economic policy, social policy, environmental policy that we've seen since uh, early 1980 when Ronald Reagan won. So this is going to be a dramatic change. Uh, and how dramatic is depends. Congress goes along with these things, but a lot of the proposals are very different than anything we've uh, seen in a long time. So let me talk about what regime change means. I'll first give you our base case. And I know this is hard to believe, but uh, there's going to be a Trump bump. The economy is actually going to get stronger over the next uh, 18 months uh, than uh, it would have been without uh, some of the things that might happen. We think the tax cut proposals are likely to go through and uh, very much uh, like he's proposed with some changes because the Republican House Ryan plan is very similar, and they've got the votes. So as the tax cuts we think happen, uh, I'll talk about what they are in a minute. Uh, we think the spending increase probably happens to a lesser degree, but there's been an introduction of a bill in Congress yesterday by uh, John McCain to increase defense spending a little over $125 billion a year over what it was supposed to be uh, or planned to be, and I think that happens. Uh, and there will probably be increases in the infrastructure side, uh, our real estate, uh, two real estate people are going to be the co-chairs of the infrastructure uh, program. 
uh, and they're talking about spending, again, 100 to 150 billion more a year than we have spent in recent times. Uh, as much as a half trillion dollars uh, we might see uh, in the near term. Near term meaning it takes a while to do, so that would be four or five years. And just as important is going to be the change in regulation that banks, uh, every group of banks, uh, pension funds, uh, obviously energy firms, everyone faces, there's going to be a wholesale change in regulation. A lot of this can be done by just uh, appointing different people to the jobs of doing the regulation, and they don't require congressional changes. So we think, again, a lot of that might happen over the next several years as there's a lot of vacancy rates, vacancies in terms of people who can, you can appoint to these boards, including the Federal Reserve Board, where there are two vacancies now and there will be more coming. So I think that a lot of this is going to happen. We do think that uh, unlike the uh, team that he's uh, put in place, it's likely to have an effect of much larger budget deficits. So the last big stimulus plans we had, we had three of them in the last uh, uh, 30 years. The Reagan one was in the middle of a great recession. We had 10% unemployment rate, and we needed it. And the Bush plan, we were in a recession uh, when he came into office. And Obama came in with a spending plan uh, with Congress, and we were in a big recession. Now we're in a very full employment economy. So the major impact of these uh, strong uh, new measures will be higher inflation rates. I think this is uh, not being talked about as much as it should. But inflation is running about 2.2% today, likely to see that go up to much bigger levels. We think as much as 4, 4.5%. takes a while. This doesn't happen instantly. And that's going to surprise the world. Interest rates are affected by this. And what's going to happen is higher interest rates. We've already seen the 10-year bond move from about 170 it hit as high as 260 in recent weeks. It's backed off today. It's about 248 or so. Uh, but it's much higher interest rates and a stronger dollar. And the dollar was strengthening until he commented yesterday he thinks the dollar is too strong. Presidents aren't supposed to say that, but he did. So the tweet world may change things. But uh, the dollar will be stronger because of these higher rates and better economy. And we think for real estate, the biggest impact is going to surprise you that cap rates, which have been so low for so long, Record lows, finally, over the next three years, are going to move up, uh, we think, by about half of the amount the Treasuries move up, so about 100 basis points. But on a 4% or 5% level, that's a 20% decline in value, everything else equal. Uh, and I don't think any of us are ready for that, but I think it's very possible. And everything I said is probably not right. Uh, <laughs> the uncertainty and the volatility of the leadership that we have is substantial. Stability is not what we're going to look for. He has said he wants to keep the world off balance. And being off balance himself, it's very likely that's going to happen. So I think it's going to be very, uh, we're going to wake up every morning and we don't know what's going to take place, uh, what he's going to say. Uh, it's possible he'll change and uh, be very uh, different, but I don't think so. And the risk case is exactly that. I think we all focus on the risk case that uh, we might get a trade war with China and create a hard landing. And uh, the Bay Area is especially dependent on trade uh, and the pipeline of goods from Asia, people, H-1V visas. His immigration plan could stop some of that or uh, make it difficult. 18% of the renters in the Bay Area are foreign-born non-citizens. That's a lot of people. And so if he does some of the things he's talking about, that could be a problem. Uh, also, uh, as we see higher interest rates and higher inflation, we could also see some people looking at non-new economy 
stocks and places to invest their money. So venture might not get, attract as much capital. That's already slowed down. So there's a number of cases where uh, we could create a geopolitical event or environment that derails this Trump bump that I've been talking about. We should realize, though, if we get the bump, it's going to last two or two and a half years. It's going to be like a sugar high that, you know, it looks better, looks, feels better, but we're already so good that in the end it's not going to be a, it's going to be a more d- deep correction going forward. So let me just take you through each of the proposals and talk about what's going to happen. Uh, the tax reductions they're talking about, Ryan Plan and Trump proposals are very similar. Cutting personal tax rate, tax top brackets, getting a simplified three-bracket uh, world, 33% top, top rate, cutting business taxes, the face rate from 35% to maybe 20 or 15, eliminating inheritance tax, uh, eliminating the Obamacare tax. Uh, there's also talk of uh, basically eliminating interest deductibility. That is, if you borrow money to finance things, they're saying that you won't be able to deduct those interest payments. They're going to allow you to expense the full investment in the first year. That isn't going to happen because it would just upend so many industries, but it might. Uh, on the spending side, I mentioned infrastructure and uh, uh, defense. And the Federal Reserve is probably the underestimated thing. I happened to run into my good friend Janet Yellen. Uh, she actually lives in Berkeley when she's not in Washington and ran into her at our local Saul's Deli. Uh, there's 500 people here. No one knows who she is except me. It's great. Uh, that's a role. She's the second most powerful person in the country, maybe even the most powerful person now. Uh, and so we have a long talk, and she knows it's going to be difficult. They've got two appointments to fill right away, uh, which she'll put conservative economists in. Uh, and she will be, she said, I'll, I'll be back here next year, which means she will be doesn't expect to keep her job. So we're going to have a more hawkish Fed. What that means is normalization of interest rates, which you heard me say two years ago and last year, and I was wrong both times. So third time's a charm. Uh, that Trump is going to make that happen if he gets some of these programs and many of these programs in place. There's a lot of other things that we could deal, talk with, talk about, but all my friends in finance uh, and energy are so positive. They're looking for deregulation or lessening of regulation, lessening of enforcements. Uh, one of my big bank friends, and he's not here today, so I say he expects to, they're going to lay off thousands of compliance officers and add thousands of uh, business development people. Our system has been, uh, to some extent, uh, hurt by the overregulation of finance and other areas. Energy, people are so excited. Pipelines, all these other things are likely to happen. Uh, on the EPA front, I mean, you just see who is appointing to these various roles, and it tells you that where, where, what he's trying to do. On the trade side, that's what worries me most. We are so dependent on that in the Bay Area, most dependent of any place in the country. Do we impose tariffs? Do we alienate China? Uh, and I'm just worried that we could be in a situation where we get into a, a trade dispute with them, uh, and we would hurt, all of us would hurt, especially many of the companies you work for. On immigration, we are dependent on this great flow of people. 45% of all population growth in America is due to immigration from abroad, legal immigration. H-1V visas uh, and keeping these great people who come to school in the U.S., keeping them here, should be a priority. And maybe he won't do what he says, but appointing Jeff Sessions, head of the Attorney General, is the most uh, immigration restrictionist person in the Senate. 
So his appointments so far don't make me feel comfortable. Healthcare, all the promises, I don't see how you do this. Healthcare is so complicated, so difficult. I think it means more people are going to be uncovered uh, going forward. So where are we starting uh, the new economy, the new regime? It starts tomorrow. It is shocking. And he's going to be on the dollar bill right away. Uh, <laughs> you may know, you probably don't know this, but George Marcus, uh, not George, George Washington, George Marcus would appreciate that. <laughs> George Washington, our first president, was a real estate man. He made all his money in real estate speculation. He was a surveyor, surveyed the land, and bought up around where he knew things were going to happen. So he and Donald Trump have at least that element in common. Nothing else but that element. Uh, but job growth has been slowing. And you can see from these numbers uh, on a monthly basis, it's been slowing a little bit, but it was still a very strong year. We averaged 165,000 private sector jobs. We think the Trump bump will increase job creation uh, back to closer to the 200,000 level. That's not a lot, but if you add it up, it's about a half million jobs a year. So he will produce in the first two years a million more jobs. Not the five million, he thinks, but a million more. And I think that is likely, again, barring the upset from geopolitical or other events. The unemployment rate, which was, is running today 4.7%, will go down to the low fours. And that uh, clearly, we have a very tight labor market. He's got to figure a way to bring in some of those people who have left the labor force, get them to come back. That's going to be the key if, he's going to be, if the plan is going to be successful. We have almost 5.5 million job openings today, highest we've had ever. So we have a mismatch between skills and job openings. We see it in Silicon Valley. We see it in construction. We see it in healthcare, in tech. Uh, and so we need more people. And so you should want more immigration, and you should want retraining programs for those people uh, who aren't in the labor force now. I don't think they have plans to do that, but again, the person who's going to be in charge of the infrastructure program, the spending program, uh, I know him very well. I spent an hour spending time with him in December, and we might be able to have some influence because he's a very powerful, smart guy, uh, and he might have some influence on this. Wage growth is accelerating already. So on a full employment economy, if you put all this new stimulus in, it means faster wage growth. And despite the fact that many people are negative and at low confidence level in the new president, consumer confidence has jumped in a huge way. You can see, especially in the top three income classes, but it's jumped. The only place where consumer confidence has fallen is in the highly educated Northeast population. Everyone else is more positive. Uh, even though the CNN polls and everything else, so people aren't happy with them, but consumer confidence done by conference board and Michigan surveys show more consumer confidence. Business confidence has jumped as well. The animal spirits are being released is what a lot of people talk about. But the downside is the deficit's going to be bigger. We think it's going to be double uh, up to about 6%. Remember, during the first year of Obama, we were at 10% of GDP. We had a big spending program, but we had also a 10% unemployment rate. We're at 4.6 or 4.7 today. So bigger budget deficits. This will be the fight in the House because there are deficit hawks under Republicans who don't want a bigger deficit. Inflation, and no one is really talking about this, but I think this is the biggest change that's going to happen. That two-thirds of this money is not going to go to stronger economy. It's going to go to create more inflation. 
And you can see our forecast. We were thinking inflation would go to 3%. It was already moving up. We're already at 2.2. We think it goes over 4%. And why that's important, of course, is interest rates. Another element of this is oil prices have stabilized. We've now got OPEC and non-OPEC states agreeing to cut production. And that stabilized oil prices in the low 50s. And so I think that is one element that's somewhat inflationary. We're not going to get the benefit of those lower prices that we had the last couple of years. In terms of interest rates, uh, as you know, that's everything for everyone in this room. Uh, The single most important effect of higher inflation rates, I think, is higher interest rates. But I have to say I've been wrong about this for three years. After the election, uh, and rates jumped, as you can see, hugely, after the election, I got a lot of emails from my clients. Finally, you're going to be right. Uh, thank you, Donald Trump. Uh, so I decided to change my name. I'm now Mad Dog Rosen. You know, his defense secretary is Mad Dog Mattis. I'm going to be Mad Dog Rosen. Uh, but I'm not sure that really does express how I feel. Uh, but these rates, I think, are uh, short rates are likely to go up. Janet Yellen has said, the Fed has said they're going to raise rates three times next year. Now, they said last December they are going to raise rates three times in 2016. They didn't do it. And they said the same thing the year before. But there's a definitely change in tone. The Fed is worried about all the stimulus coming in at a time that's maybe inappropriate. Janet Yellen said this, actually, in her news conference. Uh, and she knows she's going to be in for a tough time. So we think rates go up. Uh, rates ju- jumped after the election. They've come back a little bit. But we think it'd be very hard to see if inflation's 4%, how we don't have a 10-year bond at least at 4%. The real rate of interest, which is the TIPS bonds, these are inflation-adjusted bonds. You get paid this plus a CPI adjustment each year uh, is still very low. So monetary policy is still very easy at the moment. We think this artificially low. They're going to go back to a level we think about 2%. But the constraining factor is the rest of the world. And as you know, rates are extremely low in Europe. They were actually negative in Germany before the election. Now they're positive 0.32. France is borrowing at 80 basis points. Uh, UK is 130. Uh, So they're lower than ours. So you could make the case, and a lot of people do, that our rates can't jump too much because otherwise offshore people will buy our bonds because they're yielding more and they expect the dollar to strengthen. Look at December 2006. I think this is the reality we're heading for by 2019, uh, that we're going to have rates in the high threes in Europe and mid fours here. And it's really three, four things to do this. Higher inflation rates, uh, number one and most importantly, rising short-term rates as the Fed adjusts to normal and gets that short rate back up to 3 to 4% over, again, three-year period of time. Rising real rates of interest because we have stronger economic growth. And the real rate is very highly correlated with economic growth. And then lastly, something none of you really think about, but the Fed owns $4.5 trillion of Treasury bonds and mortgages, up from $1 trillion in 2007. And there's going to be a lot of pressure to let that balance sheet run down as interest and principal mature. Uh, And again, this past week, first time we've heard discussion of this in a long time. And the Fed is talking about that, uh, doing that. So there's a lot of forces, I think, pushing rates higher. The one thing pushing rates and, of course, the larger budget deficit have to issue more bonds. Offsetting that is, of course, the global arbitrage argument. So here's the forecast that uh, the market gives us. 
The yellow line is the market's forecast of the 10-year bond uh, as of a couple of days ago. Uh, and the market's forecast is the 10-year bond is going to stay under 3%. It's, again, as I said, about 240 today. But remember, before the election, the market's forecast for the 10-year bond was to be at 2%. So it's moved up a lot already. The green line is if the Fed does what I think they're going to do, what they say they're going to do, inflation does what we're expecting, the 10-year bond actually goes to the mid-fours. It doesn't happen immediately. It goes in steps over the next three years. Uh, and, of course, if we upset the apple cart, a global trade war, we go back into recession, and some very famous economists tell us we're going to go back into a deep recession. I don't think that's the case, but if we make the wrong moves and create problems, we could, and rates could go lower again. But we think that's not the most likely case. So let me just give you our pre-election and post-election so you can see how we changed our forecast. We were expecting a slower level of activity in 2000. 17, some pick up in 2018. We now think it's going to be uh, a better number, uh, 2 to 3% growth. Uh, again, uh, Manukin, who's the Secretary of Treasury nominee, talked about 4% today uh, on television. 4% uh, is pretty tough to get when you're already at full employment. Unemployment rate goes lower. Uh, we still create about 2 million jobs a year. And again, for you managing corporate real estate, that means still a lot of demand for space. Rising short rates and rising long bonds and rising inflation rates. But these are not high levels. These are levels that just go back to where we were uh, in 2005 and 6. Not even there yet. So it's not a dramatic move in that sense. It's only dramatic because we've been so low for so long. We've had zero rates for seven or eight years here on the short end. We've had the 10-year bond in the ones for a long time. So that is just saying relative to where we've been, it's a big change, but not to where normality would be. In terms of where this is happening, uh, as of the end of the year, we still have a lot of strength in the West. Those are all green. Blue and green are very strong economies. Southeast is very strong. And we had some weak places. The weakest places are energy locations. North Dakota, uh, Wyoming, Houston, uh, Oklahoma. Uh, and then there's a the special case of uh, Puerto Rico, which is not energy. It's the fact that uh, they have a huge deficit, huge debt created. People are leaving in massive numbers, uh, not good demographics. That'll be one of the things that the administration has to confront. Does Puerto Rico go bankrupt, and what do we do about it? Here's our ranking of cities, and I have all the California cities in yellow. And you can see we're the heart of some of the strongest economic growth in the country. 35,000 jobs created year over year, 3.4% growth. Uh, Seattle uh, slightly outpaces us, Orlando and, uh, and Dallas as well, but we're just right near the top. It's important to say that uh, this engine of growth has been going on now for five years, and that's why we have a uh, shortage of space, uh, higher, much higher rents, and traffic jams. San Francisco is not much further behind. We're growing a little more slowly, but still 30,000 jobs. And San Jose, of course, the Silicon Valley, San Francisco is San Mateo, San Francisco, and, and Marin County, primarily San Francisco. We move down the list. You can see the East Bay, Oakland, uh, doing just about as well. Not quite as well, but almost as well, as is uh, most of Southern California. Uh, the one place that's slower is L.A., but again, absolute numbers of jobs, those are still very strong. The weakest big metropolitan area is Houston, the capital of energy production. We've had massive cuts in energy employees, and so Houston's barely growing. 
terms of absolute numbers, again, uh, the big metropolitan areas are all doing well. And that's what's so amazing about this election. Uh, there's so much, so much focus on how bad the economy was. It is about as good as it's been in my lifetime. So it just was totally wrong. There are four or five million people left behind who've lost their jobs to global competition and automation and change in energy. But uh, we've got a lot of people doing really well. So that's odd that uh, that's what won the day in the election. The case was not made on the other side how good the economy was, but it is good. Everyone in the Bay Area knows it's hot as it's ever been, hotter than it was in the late 90s. So what does all this mean for real estate? Well, I think number one thing to say is uh, we mentioned cap rates go up. We think between 100 and 120 basis points between the end of this 2016 and the end of 2019. That's a pretty big number off of a low base. But these levels were artificially low, driven by the Treasury bond being so low. It wasn't a real estate bubble. It was a Treasury bond bubble. But the good news is we weren't anywhere near as low as Treasuries. The spread was still pretty wide going into this period of time, about 200 basis points roughly. So one could argue that unlike the late 80s, which we knew was a mistake and we were going to end badly, and it did, some of the biggest declines in real estate values ever, and 2004, 5, and 6, and 7, same thing, interest, uh, cap rates were too low relative to the Treasuries. This time, that's not the case. So it's not a real estate mistake. It's a Treasury bond mistake. So the good news is there is cap rate uh, expansion, but it's limited because we still have uh, spread compression that could take place. In terms of fundamentals, uh, we have a couple of property types that are exhibiting some issues. High-end apartments, both in Silicon Valley and San Francisco, we've actually had rent declines, and luxury condos. On the other hand, every other product type is in the supply-demand balance situation where rents are rising, vacancy rates are falling, and we've got quite a bit of development. And, of course, you can see Class C malls are almost out of the universe negative. Uh, look at our two basic economies here. San Francisco, job growth has been slowing, and we had expected it that 2017 and 18 would have been a correction year. But I think the Trump bump could well give us a couple of extra innings here before we get the correction. We are going to get a substantial correction. We know that that's true. Silicon Valley, again, job growth has slowed uh, from very strong levels, but still quite good year over year. It's been driven by capital, and we know that there's been lots of money raised, a little bit less raised in the last year, and more cautious venture investing, uh, and that's driven things. People are looking at new companies and uh, existing companies, and they're hiring to try to get growth. But we do need profitability. So there have been very few IPOs because we haven't had the profitable se sectors there. And we've had basically these companies remain private. They've created unicorns, which are companies that have a billion-dollar valuation uh, and uh, have yet to achieve that ability to create sustainable profits. And there are a lot of them. And we have the majority of them right here, in many in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. But there is a day of reckoning coming. This is Fortune magazine. And those little animals there, those are unicorns. And they're rushing to the, either the IPO gate or the acquisition gate. So we think that like 2000, 1999, 2000, 2001, there's going to be quite a bit of uh, carnage coming. Uh, 
but it's probably been postponed. And think again, the potential uh, Trump bump here. In terms of construction, uh, San Francisco, uh, we're building quite a few buildings. Most of them show up in 2017 and 18. Uh, Silicon Valley, we've had a lot of construction. And we've got some great, beautiful campuses being built here as well. The vacancy rate has come down substantially, but it's starting to edge back up again. There are a lot of spaces spoken for, but there's some space not spoken for. So we do think there's a chance that uh, this will continue to be pretty tight the next two years. But uh, I think we might well see the correction come 2019-2021. Silicon Valley, again, the vacancy rates jumped up a little bit, but still very, very tight, as you know. And, of course, there are a lot of sub-markets. Each one is different. Rent growth has leveled off in San Francisco, not quite as high as the dot-com boom. Uh, in Silicon Valley, we still have rent. Again, if I show you these numbers, none of you are in a sub-market where you have this rent, but uh, it depends on each sub-market. Sand Hill Road, Sunnyvale, they're all different. Uh, but we have rent growth that uh, has taken place, still happening to some extent. The R&D market, again, has recovered dramatically from the uh, bottom of this recession and a very tight market both in Silicon Valley and San Francisco. And rents continue to bump up. In fact, the R&D market has been the, the preferred place for capital uh, in uh, many cases. Multifamily, I thought I'd just show you, we built a lot of multifamily. Uh, and that is part of the reason, all of it's built at the high end, that's part of the reason we have uh, rents uh, actually, effective rents declining. Vacancy rates are still very tight, but edging up some. But most importantly, rent growth has stopped. Actually, rent growth is down just a hair. Uh, but at new projects, many of them are down 5 to 10% effective rents year over year. Finally, the thing that I worry most about is we have such an important part of our population who are uh, recent immigrants uh, who are renting housing, uh, who make Silicon Valley and San Francisco work. You can see our numbers. It's 18%. Uh, uh, Miami is obviously higher, 34%. Uh, Silicon Valley, I'm sorry, is 29%. San Francisco is 18%. So we have to fight any change in immigration policy that could force people who are here to leave. It would not be good for the real estate market, not be good for our major industries, and certainly not good for the rental housing market. So I'm hard to believe I'm somewhat optimistic. It's hard to see me saying these words, but I do think the Trump bump is, is real uh, and will happen. Uh, but again, beware, there are lots of things could de- derail this environment. So I think I'll stop at this point, and I think we're ready for the panel to come up, Matt, right? And by the way, this is the short version. Some of you are clients and know I have an hour and a half version of this. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Mad Dog. We really appreciate it. <laughs> I'm a little upset about that, what you said about Class C malls, so I'm going to have to think about my investing strategy. It's a joke. Um, so Ken's going to get us uh, set here. Oh, can I have the clicker, please? Oh, yeah, Mad Dog, it. thank yeah. you. Okay. Um, I'm going to introduce our panelists. And uh, you can read about their wonderful qualifications on the screen. But I'm going to also speak a little bit to the roles that we're asking them to play uh, as we sort of explore um, what to anticipate in the coming year and years beyond. 
So our first panelist is Bruce Kane. Raise your hand over there, Bruce. Thank you so much for joining us. Bruce is with Stanford. Uh, he's an expert in U.S. politics. And we're really going to be asking um, Bruce to help us understand the relationship of the federal government to us in the state of California, to the economy, um, really to give us a perspective that we haven't had before in one of these economic forecasts. Bruce, we really appreciate you, you being here. Thank you. Thank you. That's great. Uh, Jason Hickey. Jason uh, flew all the way from New York to be part of this panel. We really appreciate that. Jason is um, Global Site Selection leading consultant to major corporations and their location strategies. And so we're going to look to you, Jason, to help us understand the kinds of questions um, that corporations are starting to ask anticipating a new economic environment. Uh, we're also going to ask about your time um, uh, in the federal government, in the executive branch, and see what you can, what you can learn us there. And, um, and finally, Gil Gonzalez is from GoBiz, which is the State Economic Development Office. And Gil's going to be our California warrior, tell us a little bit about what we're anticipating in California and how we're going to respond. Um, Gil told me that he has actually been uh, an industrial real estate broker in his career. Re so Reformed. And yeah, well, you're among, you're among friends and colleagues here. Yeah, I know. However, I think we all noticed that you didn't write anything about that in your bio. So. <laughs> And, uh, of course, Ken is going to join our panel. So if you don't mind stepping over there, sir, okay. we'll get you involved. So um, I hope you all are as excited as I am about this panel. Maybe a round of applause to help us get kicked off here. All right. All right. So, Bruce, I'm going to send the first question to you, if you don't mind. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. The first question is, what's really going to happen, Bruce? <laughs> what, what is going to happen? Help us, take us back to our civics classes. Help us remember how policy goes from Twitter to Congress to the executive branch to the states to our front door. Yeah, well, of course, uh, Twitter wasn't around when we wrote oh, these right. textbooks. Yeah. <laughs> but at any rate, look, uh, normally you can figure out what an administration do, uh, does by sort of thinking about what their incentives are and what a rational person would do. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know, that, that is a risky way to operate, a rational model here. But if you did that, you would say, and based on what Ken was saying, that the smart strategy coming in would be to do the easy popular things first, which are the regulatory relief and the tax cuts. Uh, and to get rid of the executive orders uh, that you can uh, with unilateral action. So, in other words, you undertake things that you can do unilaterally, which are executive actions. Executive actions are broader than executive orders. Executive orders are actual written-down orders. But there's a lot of rulings and executive actions that Obama's taken in the last couple months and the last months of his administration. So he's created a lot of work for the Trump administration. Uh, they're looking at legislative ways to deal with that by taking something called the Congressional Review Act, which has only been used once before. Hmm. Uh, and they're thinking of taking all these actions and somehow grouping together. Now, whether that's going to be legal or not and whether that leads to litigation remains to be seen. So the first thing you would do is that which you can do by yourself. And so I would imagine in the first day or so, you will see him sign executive orders undoing a lot of things that were done by Obama. Um, this is exactly what previous administrations have done, so that's pretty clear. 
And then you would move forward, if you were being rational, about the things that everybody agrees on uh, in that coalition. But the Republican coalition, uh, we, we had a, uh, a conference recently where we've had various consultants, Republican consultants come through, and I think they put it very nicely. They said Trump not only defeated the Democratic Party, he defeated the Republican Party. Hmm. And meaning that the Republican establishment has been you know, thrown uh, on its heels. And while everybody agrees about the tax cuts and they agree about uh, the regulatory relief, when you get deeper into the details of policies, there's a lot of coalitional tension that's going to come out between the Tea Party people who are going to be very worried about uh, you know, <laughs> rising deficits again. That was what drove the Tea Party crazy during the Bush administration. Uh, you're going to have uh, the people that are expecting uh, in the Rust Belt states that uh, Trump is going to deliver in terms of jobs in the, in the Midwest. So yes, there might be a lot of prosperity around the country, but it, will it be concentrated in those areas with the extractive states where the people um, clearly thought that he would bring back coal? Well, you know, that's going to take a while to bring back coal because that's going to require doing something about, uh, you know, carbon capture. And that's a very expensive technology. So my prediction is that like Ken is saying, I think we will have this Trump bump. Uh, we will have this period where the coalition can do the things that are easy. The problem that we've seen in the last few days is that Trump seems to want to move ahead on everything at the same time. And so he's pushing on the ACA. He's saying that he's got a plan that he's going to unleash. He's uh, talking about, you know, getting into the trade negotiations very quickly. So what he's doing is taking up some things that will create some of the tensions much sooner than you would otherwise think. And so it's going to be very interesting to see in tomorrow's talk what he signals in terms of how he prioritizes these things. And if his sense of urgency, along with the very heightened expectations he's created about, uh, Ken mentioned one, growth rate of G, uh, GDP, growth rate of 4%. That's a big promise, and, and Ken doesn't think we're going to see it, and I, I'm with him. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's, let's see what he says in that talk, and let's see what he does in the first few days. And if he's pushing ahead on all the fronts, I'm not sure the Trump bump lasts the two years that Ken thinks. I think it may be much shorter than that. Bruce, that's very helpful. Thank you very much. Um, and we'll all be listening closely tomorrow, I think. Okay, Jason, you're up next. And reading your bio, we find out that you uh, served in the President's Domestic Policy Council. Yes, a few, a few presidents, a couple of presidents ago. So you're going to have to tell us which president, and <laughs> you're going to have to, we're going to ask you, what do you think is happening? I mean, you've been there. So paint a picture for us and what questions, and we've got inauguration tomorrow, speeches to write. Well, I ha was happy to serve under, uh, under the George W. Bush administration, which uh, he, he's a little bit more popular uh, than, than, he, than he was not, not too long ago. But, um, but certainly uh, a lot of question marks, but at the same thing, some, some excitement in some of the policies that are being developed that um, want to be rolled out as quickly as possible. Um, there were rumors at the beginning when they were planning the inauguration that the parade was only going to be an hour so that he could quickly get into the West Wing and start changing things. Um, and I, I think they extended it because uh, there needs to be more participation. But I think we'll see some immediate action over the next few days. And then some really interesting things as it applies to infrastructure, for instance. Um, things that have been proposed within Congress that could be worth 
trillions of dollars in tax breaks in the in the what what we saw not too long ago in the increase of solar and energy and that economy now shifting into a public and private partnership economy that that allows a um, uh, Speaker Ryan, yesterday, it's the first time I, we had heard this, uh, a 40 to 1 match, perhaps. Um, $1 federal funds uh, and 40 of, of, of uh, private funds in some of these infrastructure projects. And so um, some exciting things ahead, but, um, but people, I think, are going to be paying close attention to the words tomorrow. There, there probably isn't a speech in recent memory that's going to be as important. Um, and the Twitter handle. And he's going to have two Twitter handles. Um, so we'll have to pay attention. Both POTUS and I, and, and he'll be keeping his oh real boy. Donald Trump. All right. We'll have to get two phones. Um, <laughs> okay. Gil, we'll jump to you. All right. So I think the question I want to ask you to start out with is about California's competitiveness. Sure. It is possible that we're going to become the least favorite state of the sitting president. Um, hopefully not. Um, and we've, we're a very competitive state. We do very well. How, is that going to continue, and, and how will it continue? Well, we, we certainly hope so. Uh, you know, there's, there's, I'm, I'm going to state the obvious, and I think you've seen the legislature and s- several other electeds come out and say that re- they're really going to be kind of the anti-Trump uh, platform throughout this presidency. And um, from our position, from Go Business pres- position, um, we're really playing a wait-and-see game. Uh, so we are really the uh, go-to economic development arm for the state of California. So we oversee all of the tax credits, uh, incentive programs, et cetera, like Cal Competes, formerly what was the state enterprise zone. So uh, to answer your specific question, you know, are we going to remain competitive? I, I believe uh, in certain markets, certain industries, bioscience, electric vehicles, um, uh, battery storage, uh, when we're talking about infrastructure and how that plays into uh, the California economy, I certainly think so. And I, I, I want to say that I believe that there should be uh, some real positive ways of working together with the new administration um, because I do believe that the president is going to really key up some key initiatives to, to really drive the economy. And, and I think that we have done uh, the legwork already to really be that turnkey uh, to kind of step into that and it's to step into some real successes, whether that's clean energy, electric vehicles, uh, solar, wind, etc. So... I, I, I certainly hope we, we remain competitive. Otherwise, I'll be out of a job. So. <laughs> well, many will. Um, Ken, a couple questions for you. One quick one. I don't know if anybody else was surprised to see Orlando at the top of job growth. Um, is that because there was a hurricane and they're cleaning up? or uh, uh, what, It is the center of a housing boom yeah. really? and entertainment. Housing mm. boom is actually driven by Puerto Rico. That when people leave Puerto Rico, the number one destination is Orlando. Uh, and 100,000 people left in the last three years. So they're building lots of houses. But also the entertainment complex there is doing great. And it's very affordable. Hmm. You know, we look at a median house price in the Bay Area of 800000 There it's 220000 Wow. And you can actually buy housing that's decent for 125000 I only know this because I was on the board of a company that's building lots of houses in Orlando. Gotcha. Uh, and Dallas, and again, uh, both Dallas and Orlando have something in common. No state income tax. Our top tax bracket's over 13%. So this is a case where people are relocating. Uh, I know the governor quite well, and I pointed him out that we're, we're losing people already here and business already here are moving. Not out of Silicon Valley, but overall retirees are moving. And I think that, that Florida and Texas are beneficiaries. Also, Washington State, 
they also have no state income tax. So again, benefiting from that differential. We have okay, a lot you're of... Just, you're just trying to rile up Gil. No, yeah, he is trying to do it. I got some facts <laughs> to counter. <laughs> Which is fine. I, I right. hope you will. Yeah. Uh, and I've spent time with our, <laughs> our great governor, and he really is a great governor, uh, on these issues. Uh, I was disappointed to see that uh, extension of that higher tax rate. It is a problem uh, that uh, we have to deal with by creating other incentives. Gil, just a quick quick reply or rejoinder? You know, I, I, there, there's no doubt that obviously we've lost uh, some companies, uh, some specific companies that are in certain sectors that just can't remain competitive in California. I would, you know, the numbers are, just as, as Ken had noted before, is that California does have a net job increase. So over the past three years, we've added more jobs in Texas, Arizona, and Nevada combined. So, um, you know, I, I think that that really speaks, again, to the strength of our economy. Our job really in the state is to make that, that uh, job growth more equitable across the state instead of kind of the barbell approach in Silicon Valley and Los Angeles, right? So uh, there, that is a good point. Um, I'll leave it there. And then, Jason, I imagine you have some opinion or advice to clients on this front. California's competitiveness, location strategies. Have the questions changed since uh, the election that, that clients are asking you? So it's... Um all questions, for the most part, are driven in, the, in, this, in this space today in, in workforce. And you have such a significant talent pool here. There's, there's cost to it um, across the board, but the talent pool is here, and the growth potential is here. So if you, if you need to scale up because you've got a brand-new organization that's, that's skyrocketing in growth, this is, this is the place to do it. And that's evident across the entire landscape. And that's evident as things progress, as you look at the different uh, logos that are on buildings over, over the next uh, 10 years. You'll see different ones that are growing. And they start to diversify across different, different landscapes outside of, of this region. But um, is California competitive compared to other locations? Um, no. But are there some very important aspects of doing business here? You know, absolutely. But more and more, there's going to be shifts along the lines of things that we've already talked about on, on getting it probably tougher to, to get talent in uh, into this region from, from overseas, um, but also other companies from a foreign direct investment standpoint wanting to do business here, uh, it, it's going to become more complex. And we're starting to see some of the beginning elements of that mm. uh, starting now even. Great. Well, Bruce, I think that's, uh, that leads to a question that I wanted to ask you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about H-1Bs, and Ken talked about that. That nature of immigration, um, professional services, immigration, talent, and it's important to the Bay Area economy. We also uh, draw in a lot of labor from Mexico and from Central America and South America, very vital to our economy here in California. Are we going to end up with our own foreign policy? Um, Yeah. Well, it's hard to have your own foreign policy. Uh, (laughs) And uh, to be honest, uh, if... We really don't. It depends upon which of the many things that he's talked about doing he actually does. Hmm. So the mildest version of it is a continuation of Obama one. So the first term of Obama, Obama deported a fair number of immigrants, over two million immigrants, uh, that uh, had some sort of criminal, serious criminal problem. And if, if indeed. The Trump policy is merely to continue Obama one. It was in, in Obama two. He sort of took uh, the, the, his foot off the pedal of that, uh, largely in response, I think, to uh, groups within the party, the co- party coalition, uh, particularly Latino. And he didn't have re-election, so he need, didn't need to do anything about uh, uh, you know about worrying about the competitive states. 
So uh, Obama 2 was very different. So if he goes back to Obama 1, that's the mildest version. Then you can scale it up. Well, maybe he will actually propose that significant numbers of DABA, DACA, others uh, will have to go back to Mexico and then re-enter. That is the sort of proposal that Romney uh, suggested. And uh, if that happens, there will be a tremendous controversy and obviously, uh, as Ken pointed out, tremendous implications for the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And of course, it, it poses a real problem for California and for the governor in terms of how do you deal with that? Because there's over, uh, you know, there's a quarter of a trillion dollars worth of federal money that comes into this state in various forms in terms of uh, direct payments to people, flood insurance or, uh, you know, ACA payments, subsidies. There are uh, are grants and, uh, you know, there are uh, contracts to businesses. Mm -hmm. And if the federal government wants to play hardball, then... Uh, we have to decide as a state, you know, where do we take a stand? At what point in his immigration restriction policy is it worth playing hardball or, or, or letting him play hardball with us? And I think he, he might. I mean, it's hard to say, but he might do that. Hmm. And so I, and, and I think the hardest one will be if he does something like completely restrict Muslims from coming in, something that is morally difficult for uh, a lot of Californians, then <laughs> that one is a really tough one. I think in, if it's something less than that, you could always uh, say, oh, yeah, well, we'll do that, but then actually not comply in a very serious way. Mm-hmm. But I think if it's something where mm-hmm. even saying, well, we'll go along with it is morally offensive to a lot of Californians, then I think we're going to have a really hard choice. Interesting. That's very helpful. Um, one of the things that uh, Ken mentioned as probably likely to happen is corporate tax reform. Um, And for many of the uh, companies represented here, substantial overseas businesses and substantial cash uh, tied up overseas. Um, So if it's likely to happen, what's going to happen with that money when it comes back? And um, Jason, we'll start with you on that question. Well, um, the, the, the proposal to repatriate dollars back to the U.S. is extremely important on some of these proposals to make the, it work in Congress. I, there's a lot of uh, folks in Congress that will not vote for something that's not, um, that has to be revenue neutral. And that's one way to potentially solve that is, is these monies coming in. Now, what that means is you'll see massive investments here. Is, and we're already starting to see some, some de-investing out of China into other markets, some coming here because of mechanization and, and the way that technology is, is now being embedded into many of your companies for quite a few years, but other companies that are starting to really invest in, in equipment, making it more productive, not only the people, but the operations. And, and that helps generate all of that capital helps generate all that investment. And I think beyond it, um, many of you are, um, are asset managers, and you'll probably deploy some of that capital into new assets, new buildings, new investments, uh, maybe new equipment if manufacturing. Um, that could be a very exciting element, too, back into the economy. Gil, onshoring would certainly be uh, something that Trump, Trumponomics wants, right? And sure, are you absolutely. seeing any inquiries? Are you seeing any demand? Uh, probably about once a week. So uh, just to kind of give, give you a little bit of scope of our work, so I'd probably say that um, 
40, uh, let's say 50% of our work, and there's, there's about seven people on our team that do business attraction retention for the state, is with companies that are looking to expand within California. The other uh, maybe 20 to 25 percent are uh, coming from out of state looking to come this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the remaining percentage is, is really international companies that are looking to either onshore or look at the extension of, like what, you, what Jason mentioned, uh, a manufacturing arm of what they may be doing other seas, and that's primarily coming from Asia. So, uh, so we, we certainly do see that now, and we certainly anticipate and are prepared mm-hmm. for uh, the bump, the Trump bump, so that that continues to happen. So absolutely. Ken, if we succeed, and then there's this um, reform that allows money to come offshore back to the United States. Where, where do you think it's going to show up in the economy? How's it going to be? Well, I, I, I would say that I wish Jason were right, but money is fungible. And there is no shortage of capital in the U.S. now. Everybody's got plenty of money except companies that shouldn't have it, uh, a lot of these uh, unicorns. But, but, but basic companies have a lot of money, and what they've done is basically use that offshore capital by borrowing domestically at very low rates and investing. So I think there'll be some bump, but I don't think if we think about the $3 trillion they're talking about, I would expect most of that money uh, is already, uh, people have invested what they want already. I think they might invest more, though, because of the better regulatory environment, better overall tax environment, so they can keep more of the money. Uh, So that might help. But I think the repatriation itself probably doesn't do a lot. There's some talk of earmarking the money, for infrastructure. I have no idea how you do that, but there's some talk about that. Uh, but I think it, basically the big companies which have most of the money overseas already have enough resources, and I don't think they're going to increase their investment plans just because they can take that back here because mm-hmm. they just borrowed against it and used that money here. And we know the companies, all the big ones here have done that. Right. Um, maybe, Ken, you can play out for us, and then we'll have the other panelists talk to it. You mentioned we have some sectors that have been bearish for a long time, finance, energy, that are bullish now. What are the real estate implications? And this is a national question or even a global question. Sure. I, I would say uh, finance. Uh, they're talking about getting rid of the Volcker rule. So the animal spirits come back. So we had finance jobs in New York City decline 3% over the last decade. They might increase again, and in San Francisco and L.A. and other places as well. Uh, energy employment has declined dramatically because prices have plunged. Mm. It's nearly not regulation. But if we make energy production more profitable because of reduced regulations and the higher price, we might see employment turn around there. Uh, tech has been the winner. Uh, and I should say tech. It's the new economy. Let's not say tech. It's the new economy because Mercedes is using it. and General Motors. This has involved every company. And I think we continue to do very, very well, but we may not look quite as attractive as we did uh, with some of these new plans. Uh, mm. So I think the loser is probably health care. Uh, it's hard to see how a replacement plan is going to put as much money in as we have. Uh, so that, I think, health care. And then the pharmaceutical industry is the number one Twitter target these days of yeah. mm. Mr. Trump. Uh, and uh, so that is, could be a negative. Biotech could be affected by that. Mm. Uh, and if I'm a defense contractor, I am so excited. <laughs> they're going to put a lot of money in here. And yeah. for every time he mentions negotiating a deal on the plane, there's going to be a lot of money spent. So Northern Virginia is going to finally recover. It's a vacancy rate there is 25% in office space. Mm. So it should recover. Mm. California will get its share, though, because a lot of this defense stuff is 
related to the technology stuff, and we have a lot of that here. Yeah. We used to be a major defense contracting place, much less so now. Right. But we still, still have some of it. Yeah. Thank you, Ken. Jason, does that square up with the different kinds of clients you hear from and the, and the different plans that they're asking you to weigh in on? Yeah, I think the only thing that has been mentioned is energy. Um, the, the price of energy right now is, is a big uh, magnet for opportunity, partic particularly heavy manufacturing that, that uh, really relies on that and, and the, the, at least the, the stable cost of it. And that um, they could find great savings here than they can in, in anywhere else and, and overcome some of the, 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 other, the other hurdles. Um, but, it, you know, right now it, it, uh, there, were some, there were some things um, you mentioned earlier about, um, about the, the amount of jobs out there that aren't filled. Um, it's kind of an anecdotal uh, data point, but about 25% of the jobs out there go unfilled for more than, um, more than a couple of months. And, and um, it's, a, it's a mismatch between people and skills. And I think we're seeing this big uptick that's very politically um, evenly supported, and that's support of retraining, skill set attainment, things of that nature. And that's so critical. That's so critical in areas that where, where we need that to happen in areas of this country, but also, um, also here to be able to get that person to the exact skill set that the company is looking for. Your, your job um, postings are probably so specific that uh, you may get 1,000 applicants, but that one person, maybe that one person has the specific skills that you're looking for. And that's, that's been the toughest part is to be able to find that specific talent that's there. And um, uh, to be able to, to, to potentially tap into the underemployed, the people that have left the workforce, that have talents of uh, not just technology, but um, someone that maybe in their early career uh, was, was trained in tool and die. Mm -hmm. that um, 30, 20 years ago um, they went into a different career path because that job left or what have you. Finding those individuals and bringing them up to a skill set is going to be a, a, a big factor in a lot of areas outside of California. Um, so I have a skeptical follow-up question for you. Have you really seen a corporate client uh, make a location decision and have skill availability outweigh cost, economic incentives, wage rates? Sure. So yes, um, when the reoccurring cost of labor is, is basically that number one factor of that site. So if you're a customer engagement center, um, that labor cost is a, is a huge factor because that reoccurring um, far outpaces um, real estate and, and, and other operational costs. Mm -hmm. um, now, you're in manufacturing, you're replacing a lot of the people with, with machines, with robots. Um, we're entering a world where it's, um, it's pretty fascinating the things that these robots can do. And you have to get talented people to learn how to plug and play and, and, and operate them. But, um, but that's, that's very limited to the amount of 200, 300 people used to have to operate that, that line. Right. And that's a, that's, a, that's a big issue. But um, it's less involved when, when it's, it's less labor intensive. But at least half of our projects, the, the number one factor is that reoccurring cost, and that's labor. Yeah. I want to come back to energy really quick. That was Thank you for that answer. Um, Gil, I'm going to ask you, how important is clean energy, new economy, to use Ken's phrase, to California and to our growth prospects? And then, Bruce, if, after that, if you could talk a little bit about federal energy policy, state level, how much of an impact can we have to what I think Gil is going to tell us is an important part of our economy? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's no secret that it's crucial. And the bedrock of, or actually, let, let's say the... Uh, uh, one of the main uh, legs of this, this administration has certainly been uh, the greening of the economy, and I think our growth with Tesla, with Drexel Meyer, some of the other companies that are entering uh, the ZEV marketplace along that supply chain is evident that 
look, that's working. Um, and I'm not going to get into the security reasons on an international level, but uh, uh, certainly so. Uh, and I, as you'll see, this we're coming up in a, in a, on a gubernatorial race. Every single candidate, from Steyer to uh, whether Thiel gets in or Vitagosa or, or Newsom. So um, Gil reminded me of this. We all have to look forward to. Now we have a governor's race. Yeah. We just survived the presidential race. Here comes another. One, it's going to be a fun one to watch. Oh though. yeah. Okay. Um, but you're, you're going to see that as a major pillar in their administration is obviously clean, or in, in yeah. their platform is is clean yeah. energy, and for the obvious reasons. So not only from a business competitiveness perspective, but also just uh, just to be good stewards of the environment. So, so Bruce. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the Clean Power Plan was the Obama initiative, um, and the Clean Power Plan set uh, limitations by state on uh, greenhouse gas emission. And but the reality is that that was held up in the courts uh, and has not been implemented. And actually, Trump doesn't have to do anything; he can just let it sit in the courts. So. I think California sees an opportunity here to uh, go back to where it was during the Bush years uh, and has been in other periods of time when uh, there have been conservative uh, governments, which is to be the kind of outlier um, initiator uh, of innovation. And, uh, you know, we're comfortable with that role. We've done that role. We have uh, a lot of progress in bringing down the price of solar and wind. Um, there's just a lot. I mean, I'm, for reasons that would take a long time to explain, so I won't, uh, I'm a political scientist uh, that has an office in the middle of the engineering quad, and I go to more uh, seminars in engineering than I do in political science uh, because it's new, and I don't know anything about it, so I find it interesting. And there really is a lot of uh, innovative work being done in wind and solar uh, to improve. So there's a sense in the building that even if the clean power plan is not uh, coercing states into moving their portfolios away from coal and fossil fuel, that that's going to happen anyway. Mm-hmm. That as you drive these costs down and mm-hmm. as you get more efficiency, uh, we will be moving away from uh, certainly the dirtiest forms of mm-hmm. energy. I mean, the, where the political conflict will be with, is with the promise that he's made to bring coal back. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is going to be a hard because, well, you've got to really have to sell it overseas because the, the domestic demand for that coal is dropping. Yep. Well, you want to sell it overseas, you've got two problems. One is that China has its own capacity to, uh, to uh, come up with coal and use coal. And then secondly, you've got to get it to China. And basically, if you look at the composition politically now in the United States, uh, you only have four states that are completely controlled by the Democrats, and you get about 25 that are completely controlled by the Republicans. But guess where all of those states are? They're on the West Coast, and they control the port areas. And so you have an enormous frustration uh, with many of the people that want to sell and export coal that they're not going to be able to uh, put their coal on boats in Portland, Seattle, et cetera, and move it over to China. Right. So that's going to be another source of conflict and another potential for uh, fights between, if you like, the left coast and Trump. Yeah. Right. But can, can I just, just piggyback off of what Bruce just said? And I think that the com- recent confirmation confirmation hearing, I think it was with the uh, Secretary of the in- was at the interior when Kamala Harris was able to kind of step up and question 
uh, the soon-to-be-appointed uh, secretary, was talking about clean air standards in California and how he views uh, whether that's going to be uh, loosened under, under the new administration. And I think that you saw a clear indication. Um, it was no surprise that he was absolutely, in, and he wasn't in agreement at all, it seemed like, with what uh, what uh, Senator Harris was 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 essentially lobbying for. So um, that's going to be a very fascinating dynamic on um, the, right. the clean air standards as it relates to the Cal EPA, um, spe- specifically uh, vehicle emissions. And uh, with the new administration, um, that, that'll be uh, interesting. Uh, but the interesting like, thing as compared to, say, immigration, is that there's more latitude for the state yeah, true. to move forward with bilateral agreements with other states and yeah, other countries. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's big, because yeah. we remember that's what Arnold did in a period where right. the Bush administration yep. was right. not uh, keen about um, green energy. And so we were able to do that. Yep. And we've already uh, had uh, lots of uh, agreements with Canada, and Mexico has very ambitious greenhouse gas goals, and they're looking for assistance from the United States in not only uh, in renewables, but also in uh, gas. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, they've deregulated their industry, so there's a lot of opportunities, I think, down there. Can yep. you talked about interest rates, I guess you could say correcting, closer back to the historical average. And I think you were trying to reassure us that that's where they've been before and we shouldn't panic. Um, you had an interesting perspective when we were preparing, but that could have an impact on energy conservation projects that rely on financing. What other things would you have a bunch of corporate real estate people be looking out for as interest rates tick, tick up? I would go right to my CIO or CFO and say, we got to hedge this, like now, tomorrow, because it's most likely to happen. Uh, and we've been waiting for this for four or five years. And the market thinks now a little bit more is going to happen, but they're still nowhere near what might happen. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they still don't think rates get above three in the 10-year. The 10-year is what we're talking about. Uh, they're 240 today. So you can hedge out and protect yourself. And if they do get to four or five, you've got a very good protection. Uh, if you at all have to value your portfolio, uh, make sure you're less aggressive on the cap rate when you do your work this year. Hmm. And know that most likely, if you're uh, looking at a, a project, uh, factor in a cap rate that will be a percentage point higher in 2019 when you're trying to pencil a project out. Hmm. Uh, and it may mean that some of those projects probably don't make sense. Hmm. So it might help constrain the supply of new real estate, which could be a helpful thing. Very helpful. Thank you. Um, well, Bruce, the advice I've really been wanting to ask you, and I, uh-huh. and I think we all want it. Um, so we're reading the newspaper. When should we panic? Uh, and when should we be, you know, you know, relaxed and kind of think? Help us understand the pace of change, I think, is, is what's at the heart of the question, and to understand a little bit about what we're reading. Well, if it were left up to Donald Trump, the pace would be incredibly fast. But if it's left up to the political system, uh, it will not. And the reality is that both trying to implement policy and to take away policy, the quicksand of American politics applies in both directions. Uh, And I mean by that, say, just with the regulations. Uh, A lot of the executive orders are rulings. Uh, There are processes that you have to follow under the uh, Administrative Procedures Act in order to undo that. 
And so you can't just automatically wave, uh, you know, wave a wand and make things happen. You have to go through, you have to provide evidence, you have to say why the previous evidence was wrong. Uh, if Congress uses the Congressional Review Act, they're going to have to have hearings. And at the same time, they're doing tax cuts. At the same time, they're doing immigration reform. At the same time, they're doing trade policy. Okay, so what he doesn't understand, and somebody's going to have to slow him down, is... Well, your Congress is not going to be able to handle all these things simultaneously, and so there's a danger that if there's no priority, then there's no progress. And mm. so, you know, obviously his inexperience there, we've seen this with our own governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger. We had an experiment in this where he, you know, first year came in, he was going to completely revise government, he had uh, study committees, he was going to shrink the government, he had five initiatives he went forward with in uh, 2000 and I think it was five, yeah. and they got rejected. And then he turned on a dime and he decided he couldn't call the legislature girly men anymore, he had to work with them. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's, that's what neophytes have to learn. If you come out of business, you're used to saying, do something, and you've got yeah. some high probability that they'll do it if it's a well-run company. I think that's true if you're not in corporate real estate. Well, that could, we don't we don't right, experience that. Right. But <laughs> but if you're in a university or you're in politics, yeah. university because we have tenure. If the president tells me to do something, I'll tell him I'll think about it. Okay, because I'm tenured. <laughs> and if you're elected, if you're elected from a group of voters, and Trump tells you that, yeah, you know, we're just going to push those deficits up to the level that Mr. Bush had, and don't worry about it. Those Tea Party people won't bug you in the primary even though the primary we know is loaded with highly ideological people, mm. you know they may not listen to him yeah. because if it comes down to their career versus his career, he's probably going to lose. Yeah, one, great perspective. one thing that's fascinating in, in these headlines is that um, President-elect Trump has noticed what other governors have known for a long time and mayors is that these job announcements make a big difference. Huge. And people, people have... Um, you know, there's so many different philosophies about why people vote, but of course, one is uh, the tally method, right? And they're seeing all these great positive things happen, um, where economic policy could take um, you know eight, ten, nine, you know, years to really evolve. Mm-hmm. These job announcements look like things are happening immediately, and with Trump, or with with, uh, with with Trump and Twitter, and all, I mean, it's even stronger. I mean, there's not a politician that I've run across that doesn't have a you know a pair, uh, some ribbon and a pair of scissors to cut at any moment, you know, ready to, to open a, a new store or, 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 or event. But um, but it's it's fascinating to see it now evolve into the federal side that really does not affect business like that at all. But they're making those announcements anyways. And I was in a meeting yesterday in Chicago, and the CFO said, when we're all set with this announcement, I'd like to contact President-elect and um, who will be president and and you know let him know about this and maybe he'll participate. There's really no value in that, That's interesting. but it's just an interesting element to what we see uh, have seen for many years on on the gubernatorial side and and with mayors across the country. There's political value to that. Oh, there okay. may not be economic value to that, but to be seen to be trying is better than not to be seen to be trying. So I think there is value to that, and it goes with why I think you've got a honeymoon period with the Trump bump. If he keeps doing those things, even if it doesn't, I'll fundamentally change the economies in those areas. I think it's better than doing nothing. So one of the questions we got from our online uh, beforehand was about kind of cybersecurity and the hacking of the Democratic uh, National Committee, uh, the potential, whatever's in the the reports about um, the president-elect. So the question is, 
With, with cybersecurity coming front and center, so many of the people here are in cloud-based businesses, data centers, technology businesses. Do you predict any business impact from that news? Um, and Ken, I'll start with you. Well, if he uh, decides to do a trade war of some type or another, I would not be surprised to see one of the responses be cyber attacks from China hmm. and other places. Uh, it's uh, also uh, it's possible that we embrace our uh, former enemies as allies, Russia, mm. and they have pretty good cybersecurity, and they are responsible, we think, for some of these hacks, so that might be less. But I would say China is pretty uh, capable of this stuff, and we've, Obama negotiated somewhat of a, a pact with them, yeah. and that could change. Mm. So I'd, I'd be very aware of stirring the horn's nets of China. There's no reason to do this. Uh, but he might do it. Gil, cybersecurity? Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I, I agree with Ken. Um, our capabilities certainly weren't, uh, they were certainly held on a tight leash by the, the current administration, I, and I certainly believe that that's probably going to change uh, probably tomorrow. You mean our counter? counter Absolutely, yeah, 100%. Um, and that's from Washington, D.C., all the way to the state, uh, to, the, to the state level. So I... Um, yeah, but it, it's certainly going to have an impact. I mean, there's no doubt about it. There's a lot of political ramifications that we, I think it's quite apparent. So, Jason, is this a hot topic for your clients? It is. Um, I think my password, our IT department probably reset it just a couple times as we've been up here on that. <laughs> uh, many of your companies have these policies that are getting you know, harder to do business, um, which has a global effect. I, I think one of, the, one of the challenges that we've seen is just the, the – the, um, uh, taking some things that are that are rooted in intellectual property and some other activity out of places that are becoming more um, more challenging. Uh, China is one of those, but there's others that um, that we're going to see evolve. Um, and even even Brexit has a has a has a point there because um, that may evolve in a, in a different way too. That's not under the lock and key that we see today in the EU. It's going to be a totally separate organization from a cybersecurity standpoint. Interesting. Interesting. And Bruce, cybersecurity? Or? Uh, I think the private sector caught on a little faster than the government to the importance of encryption. And, and this is ironic, but uh, the reality is that there was a lot of naivete in, uh, in the DNC and I suspect also in the RNC and other uh, political organizations. They were actually slow to adopt, uh, believe it or not, uh, Internet and email to start with. Uh, that, that really... They were four or five years behind a lot of the universities in the private sector. So there's a lot of naivete there. It's going to be a huge issue. Um, it's going to be a bigger issue in Europe um, because they not only have to worry about the Russians, but they have to worry about us uh, as a result of the, you know, the information that they got out of WikiLeaks and the rest. And they're very concerned because they see not only their company material and their personal material but also their, uh, you know, basically their elections, for example, are going to be fundamentally fought on American servers and American companies. Facebook has become increasingly for younger people the place where they get their information, the place where uh, discussion and dialogue goes on. And uh, so for them, it's very upsetting to, to think that um, they can, they're not going to be able to control their electoral processes. They're not, and a lot of European systems, you're not allowed to spend money in a certain interval before the election. You can't control what goes on at Facebook. Mm. Uh, we can't control the rules on Facebook as well. So mm. uh, what's had, I, I think this whole question of hacking, 
of bots, of fake news, of what, you know, what level of privacy people have, I think that's going to be a defining set of issues for the next foreseeable decades. Yeah, thank you. Just a couple more questions, and then we'll move on to our reception. Uh, you may have noticed that we are not taking questions from the audience. That's a deliberate decision because we're dancing along political topics here. So, but you can corral these folks, especially if you disagree with them, and get them between here and the doorway. So we're just going to wrap up. There was an article in the Chronicle today, and I don't know if you guys, this is my audiovisual department, help me with this. It says, Trump versus California, how the battle will be waged. And there's like a, a bear here. You see that bear? He's mad, right? And he's holding California. Is this overblown, you guys? Is this just a little bit much? Gil? Uh, well, I'm, I'm not going to speak on behalf of the governor's office. I'll speak on behalf of kind of Gil's opinion. Yeah, Gil's it. office. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it, it's certainly, <laughs> I, don't, I have a cubicle. Um, <laughs> very small one. Uh, One of these people probably put you in it. That's yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah, I agree. They probably made it for me. Um, but the, uh, the short answer is it's certainly overblown. Um, I think as Bruce mentioned, there's, there's some, actually as everybody mentioned, there's some capabilities that California is going to move and some uh, issues that California is going to move, move ahead on. But I think the political uh, framework and what some folks are trying to set up for the next election cycle, that's kind of their uh, kind of political uh, stump and they're looking to stand on it and uh, have other people join them on, have other people join them on it and uh, hoping that's going to carry over to success and I'm not entirely sure that that's uh, a good strategy but it is what it is. Ken is it overblown? I don't think so I think that uh, we're going to be the center of dissent hmm. and this man has a very thin skin in Washington so we have a bear but I have this recurring dream I'm talking to him and all of a sudden he grows a long tail and forked tongue and turns into a reptile. <laughs> and so Godzilla versus the bear. <laughs> I, I really think he does have a thin skin, and there are a lot of money, as Bruce said, that comes here that he could affect. So, yep. uh, or maybe he'll, Jerry Brown will go to Washington and they'll get along. It's possible. Uh, you just don't know. Jerry surprised us before, hasn't he? <laughs> right. Jason, overblown? Well, how many, uh, how many of you have read The Art of the Deal? Uh, before and for the record on the podcast, everyone raised their hand, so that's um, that's excellent. Uh, what what we uh, what we know from that is that you go to the fullest extreme possible, and and we're, we're most of us are involved in development, and that certainly is sometimes the case. Um, so there's a direct correlation there, and we're going to see here pretty closely if uh, soon if that's if that's a way to negotiate foreign policy deals with uh, adversaries or economic policy with. Um, with our friends uh, and so on, so it's it's that's apparently what's happening, and um, and it's it's a pretty dynamic place. And I think what we're going to find out for uh, for the country uh, tomorrow is um, either tomorrow is going to be a place where we start some really dynamic things, or uh, January twentieth, two thousand seventeen is going to be a date that time travelers come back to to save the civilization <laughs> as we know it today. I, it, it's going to be probably either one. But we'll we'll see. We'll see. Excellent. And Bruce. Um, not overblown if we don't play our cards right. Hmm. Uh, I'm with Ken. There's a real possible downside here. I personally would not have hired Eric Holder uh, right off the bat. Yeah. Um, I personally would not have launched the Cal Exit. Um, I think you've got to pick and choose your fights. I think there are ways that you can reframe some of these issues that will appeal to him. 
Like, for example, do you really want to wreck the California economy when you're promising people 4% GDP? Hmm. Do you really want to end uh, the trade arrangements uh, when you're trying to, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, stimulate jobs and things. So I think there's a way to reframe things, and I think it's got to be done coolly and rationally. I don't think it's a good idea to, um, to pick fights. I think let them come, decide which ones you want to fight and which ones you don't. Uh, but if, if you don't fight smart, I think Ken's right. It could go downhill really fast. So, Ken, you, you said if we do a few things wrong, we could end up in recession. And I'm going to ask the group, what, what's the one thing you think could be done wrong that could shorten the Trump bump to just be a little divot and send us back into recession? Uh, Gil? I'm going to agree with Bruce. I, I just think being a party of or being a, a, a collective of no on behalf of the California delegation is going to be uh, economically uh, disastrous for us. There's mm-hmm. so many other issues that we need to address, crime, education, et cetera, infrastructure, investment. Um, that uh, being the, the party of no is, is, is going to be really, really rough for us to, uh, to handle. Ken? I think trade is the area I'm most worried about picking a, a problem with China. Mm-hmm. And it may just be just trade, but it's, you know, the, they have a, a very strong uh, trade imbalance with us. Mm-hmm. They are actually trying to strengthen their currency, not weaken it. He's talking about doing the opposite in terms of labeling a manipulator. So China is the weak point. Uh, it's a symbiotic relationship in California and China, and I think if wrong things there could could trigger something that we won't like. Jason, yeah, uh, the, I mean, certainly it's great to have opposition um, in any in any sense, but um, to, to be fully no, it's going to be challenging when you have an infrastructure potential bill or, or something that could be directed towards uh, California, and and that's a yes, but everything else is no. And that, that's going to be a challenge, I think, that's, that's just going to be it's, – it's going to be a dynamic that, that I think particularly the politicians that are, that are evolving into be very anti-Trump specifically um, are going to have to every now and then find themselves in a weird position. Yes, I absolutely want that brand-new uh, light rail line and, and updated trains, and there's the opportunity to get that through Tiger Grants or whatever it is. But, but the challenge is going to be, um, you know, they'll say yes to that, but no to maybe a lot of other things, and that dynamic is uh, always politically challenging. Bruce, what could put us in recession? Uh, I'm with Ken. I mean, uh, I think uh, I worry most about uh, the uh, trade and the immigration issues. It will be incredibly ironic and uh, almost unfair that we will begin this pattern where the Republicans, uh, you know, basically create a bubble that crashes. The Democrats come in, clean it up. Then they get blamed for it, and then we get another bubble. And uh, so that that seems to me uh, the pattern that we're in, and uh, let's – you know, I hope it doesn't keep going. <laughs> well, thank you very much, panelists. We're going to close with a don't you clap. We're going to close with a speed round. I got three speed round phrases. Oh you God. get one word or a little phrase to respond when we go down the line. And the first one is Trump bump. Good. Trump bump. Most likely. Mm-hmm. Yes. Short lived. Mm. Carnage of the unicorns. Oh, no comment. sure thing within the next three years Uh, good if you're the company with the appetite oh good bad for my students (laughs) yeah that's for sure Uh, build that wall bruce we'll start with you 
be my guest won't make a difference. <laughs> Jason. Uh, yeah, it won't, uh, it won't make a difference. It's going to be a, a, a policy wall that would have any, uh, any positive or negative effect. Build that wall, Ken. Mexico will not pay for this wall. <laughs> <laughs> Build that wall, Gil. Yeah, um, I'm gonna, my grandfather was a farm worker, so I'm going to say absolutely no. All right. <laughs> and then last one, the art of the deal. The art of the deal. Bruce? Uh, Trump is going to use car dealer politics oh. to run the United States. He's yep. going to come in with something that's ridiculous, and, uh, and then hope, I think, in the end, this is the positive scenario that we'll end up in the middle. Yeah, and that's referencing that earlier. I, I think that's everybody's um, – I think I, what's unique is that there's still hope. So with this new president, and similar to the former president, that it was all about hope. Now we're hoping that it's going to be just that, not, um, right. not some extreme. Right. But it's still about hope. <laughs> and, and that's how Jason gets himself to sleep at night. <laughs> Ken, the art of the deal. No way to run a country. <laughs> I, I'd agree, no way to run a country. And in addition to the Paul Ryan has a lot more power than I think uh, President Trump is, is letting on, and the Congress for that matter. Republicans, rather. Well, Cornet colleagues, join me in thanking our panelists. So much for joining us again today for our second podcast. Please feel free to share on LinkedIn and other social media. And as always, send us any comments so that we can incorporate them into the next podcast.